Does the United States continue to see Great Britain as an adversary? Did U.S. financiers like Prescott Bush and the Rockefellers extend the length of World War II? Was the decimation of former imperial powers like Belgium, the United Kingdom, and France as a result of World War II part of a predetermined plan by the United States? How did the collapse of the Soviet Union and the post-9-11 war on terrorism influence America's imperial agenda? What factors might frustrate America's efforts to dominate the globe? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we take an alternative historical view on the role of America in world affairs from the 19th century through World War II, through the Cold War, and into today, and discover a consistent long term agenda that has little to do with protecting democracy and freedom. Our guest for the hour is the acclaimed scholar, writer, and geopolitical analyst, Professor Michel Chosodovsky. On this week's program, Global War on Humanity, America's Unceasing Pursuit of Hegemony, a conversation with Michel Chosodovsky. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 20th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabega King, the homeland of the Métis Nation, the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Birds are being killed with ruthless efficiency by human beings and their activities all over the world. Obviously, this is an unmitigated tragedy for Earth's birds, the biosphere as a whole, and those humans who love life generally. But what are the practical implications of this ongoing bird killing for us? Well, just as the death of one canary in a coal mine warned miners about their dangerous environment, the mass death of birds is yet another warning that we are destroying the planetary biosphere. However, in this case, we are not treating the canary's death as a warning, and even if we were, it does not mean that we can escape because there is nowhere else to go. That comes from the article, Our Vanishing World, Birds, by Robert J. Burroughs, posted December 17th. The potential establishment of a NATO coordination center on the Black Sea is an obvious attempt by the U.S.-led NATO to duplicate infrastructure and missile systems in the region aimed against Russia and is accelerating because of NATO's complex relations with Turkey. Given that they cannot control the Black Sea region on their own because of the complex geopolitical situation, a NATO presence in Varna is very important as it is close to Russia's ports and Ukraine, in which the latter can be used provocatively. However, as NATO is aimed against Russia, Bulgaria now risks becoming a legitimate target for Russian strategic forces. NATO hopes that by using Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, and Georgia, all Black Sea countries, Russia can be contained in the event that Turkey truly becomes rogue against the alliance and does not block Russia from leaving the Black Sea via the Bosporus and Dardanelles. 
These strategic straits are crucial for Russia's maritime trade, and it is expected by NATO that Turkey would block these water lanes in the event of a hypothetical war against the Eurasian giant. That comes from the article, Bulgaria's willingness to host NATO naval center is aimed at containing Russia in the Black Sea by Paul Antonopoulos, posted December 17th, originally published on Infobricks. When Trump tried to be independent, albeit in a very limited degree, the attack against him started. We are now witnessing the impeachment process aimed at bringing the president back into line with the lobbies. All the presidents we have dealt with in Syria, from Nixon in 1974, when relations with America were restored, up to Trump today, are controlled by these lobbies. No matter how much goodwill any president has, he cannot act outside the policies of these lobbies. Therefore, betting on the change of presidents is misplaced and unrealistic, and I don't think that this American policy will change in the next few years. That was an excerpt of an interview with China's Phoenix Television under the headline Video, Syria's President Assad Discusses Syria's Reconstruction, China's Belt and Road, and U.S. Aggression, posted December 17th, reposted from Syria News. Instead of being detained by Roman guards, Jesus might have been made to disappear into a secret government detention center where he would have been interrogated, tortured, and subjected to all manner of abuses. Chicago police have disappeared more than 7,000 people into a secret off-the-books interrogation warehouse at Homan Square. Charged with treason and labeled a domestic terrorist, Jesus might have been sentenced to a life term in a private prison where he would have been forced to provide slave labor for corporations or put to death by way of the electric chair or a lethal mixture of drugs. Indeed, as I show in my book, Battlefield America, The War on the American People, given the nature of government then and now, it is painfully evident that whether Jesus had been born in our modern age or his own, he still would have died at the hands of a police state. Thus, as we draw near to Christmas, with celebrations and gift-giving, we would do well to remember that what happened on that starry night in Bethlehem is only part of the story. That comes from the article, The Child That Christmas Forgot, How Would Jesus Fare in the American Police State? by John W. Whitehead, posted December 17th, originally published on the Rutherford Institute. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The notion that the U.S. fundamentally departed from its adversarial stance toward the British Empire is not accurate, at least not according to Professor Michel Chosodovsky. He's recently released a paper in the Spanish language which explores America's hegemonic ambitions and provides anecdotes from history, backing up his case that U.S. policy is not only imperialistic, but designed to displace all other empires, including that of the United Kingdom. On today's program, Professor Chosodovsky joins us to break down that analysis. Professor Michel Chosodovsky is an award-winning author, professor emeritus of economics at the University of Ottawa, and founder-director of the Center for Research on Globalization, as well as editor of Global Research. Professor Chosodovsky spoke to the Global Research NewsHour on Thursday, December 19th. You presented your paper uh, in Nicaragua 
at the beginning of December. Could you briefly introduce that paper to us? Well, the focus essentially is on the globalization of war and essentially the chronology of U.S. hegemony. And I think that we have to understand that uh, the history of the last hundred years has been very much misleading because it has presented um, Britain and the United States as allies, but in fact, they were never allies. They were competing empires. And I think that this confrontation between the United States and Britain, well, which has existed right from the, out, uh, the, the onset of, uh, of um, you know, of the founding of the United States, uh, 1776. Uh, but it, I think it's in the wake of the Civil War, 1865. And um, this is not at the level of abstraction. There were um, military scenarios um, directed against the British Empire, um, and they were not limited necessarily to the Western Hemisphere, although, of course, we know Britain was, was there, both in, both in North America, Central America, and South America. Now, uh, in essence, the, the objective of the United States was to weaken the British Empire and acquire a dominant position. Uh, there's a lot of history, and I, I want to maybe point to some landmarks. The Berlin Conference of, uh, of, uh, 18, of 1884-1885, which was essentially a French and, and, and British initiative, the United States were excluded. They were there as observers, but they were never offered any role to play in the, in the carving up of Africa. So that, in effect, uh, the European powers had already decided on uh, the carving up of Africa, colonial carving up of Africa, without the United States. Now, then you had the Spanish-American War, 1898, um, and then the First World War, and what we can say is that the, the United States has consolidated its hegemony uh, in relation to the British Empire, specifically in Latin America and the Caribbean. And although the, the, the Monroe Doctrine was not directly, um, well, it was, it was not specifically directed against uh, the British Empire, it nonetheless uh, was intent on consolidating U.S. hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. Professor Chosodovsky, could you remind us briefly what exactly is the, the Monroe Doctrine and uh, when it came about? Well, the, the Monroe Doctrine uh, was, uh, was initiated um, in the early uh, 19th century, and it went through several phases. Uh, but ultimately, uh, it, it, it's, 
the concept is that that European powers should not intervene in the Western Hemisphere. And it was directed against uh, Spain, um, Portugal. Well, no, it was largely Spain and France. And, um, and as we know, that France was also involved in Mexico at one point in its history. Uh, so that it was a, it was a, a process of hemispheric consolidation by the United States. Now, what is very important, particularly for, for Canadians, is that, because we have a particular way of, of viewing our history, that from 1867 onwards, that in fact, the United States, first of all, had a plan to annex Canada. Okay? Uh, that was in 1866. Um, of course, then we had confederation, and that plan was 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 dropped. Uh, at least it, it wasn't really dropped because after World War One, uh, the United States formulated a plan to invade territories of the British Empire. It was called War Plan Red. Now, the the details of this of this. Uh, of this um, plan against to, to invade the British Empire seems absurd. They were supposed to be allies. But in fact, um, what happened is that there were plans to invade Canada. There were war games right at the, at the border, at the U.S.-Canadian border. And there were plans even to use um, chemical weapons against Canada. And the bombing campaign... Uh, had been in these war plans, which were formulated in the 20s and 30s, the bombing campaign of four major Canadian cities, namely Vancouver, Montreal, Halifax, and Quebec City, had been entrusted to none other than um, uh, uh, General MacArthur. Well, he wasn't general at the time. Okay, He became general during World War II. Um, but nonetheless, it points to the fact that there was a certain continuity. And um, there were plans to invade Canada. And, uh, and in effect, um, that suggested, in fact, that the United States never really dropped this notion of waging war on the British Empire. And in 1939... When uh, World War II broke out, uh, the United States remained neutral. It, it did not uh, it did not necessarily side with the Allies until much later. Um, so on early September 39, um, the United States declared its neutrality. Now um, I should mention uh, several other elements. Uh, first of all, and this has to do with, in fact, two um, underlying processes in World War II. One was, of course, the war on the Eastern Front against the Soviet Union. And the other one, of course, was the war on the Western Front. Um, 
Now, the United States, in the course of the 1930s, but even extending uh, further than, well, extending into World War II, the United States was collaborating quite actively uh, with, uh, with uh, Nazi Germany in the areas of finance, but also in the areas in the military production areas, uh, and this included the participation of Ford, uh, Rockefeller, and, and also the Bush family. In other words, the granddad of uh, President uh, of Bush Jr. was called Prescott Bush. In other words, he's the granddad of George W. Bush. He was, um, he was the director of the Union Banking Corporation, Brown Brothers Harriman. And they, in turn, were uh, partners with Tyson Stahl, um, an important um, company involved in the, in the weapons industry of the Third Reich. And this has been reasonably well documented um, in as much as uh, the United States would continue to collaborate uh, with, um, with Nazi Germany. Um, I should mention that after, well, in 1939, they declared neutrality. They continued cooperating with Nazi Germany. And uh, after 1941, uh, uh, Pearl Harbor, which was in December, um, of course, the, the U.S. policy changed, and they they had trading with the enemy. In other words, they weren't. They they took a stance with their allies against Nazi Germany. But there's another element which is absolutely crucial: is that Germany did not have any petrol fuel, limited amounts of petrol. Uh, this is documented in a book by by Dr. Jacques Powell's uh, prominent. Uh, Canadian historian um, as to the relationship between Standard Oil, which was the Rockefeller family, which had uh, at that time, um, I, I can't recall, but it was a very significant control over, uh, over, over the, the oil industry. And... Um, uh, Nazi Germany was dependent on oil, and that oil was sold to Nazi Germany um, through uh, directly up until Pearl Harbor, 1941, and subsequently it was sold via th third parties, um, in other words, third countries, indirectly to bypass the Trading with the Enemy Act, which was... Uh, passed in the, in the U.S. Uh, Senate. Well, in fact, it was a previous legislation, but nonetheless, um, and it's worth noting that the, the Bush family, the Prescott Bush family, were actually uh, targeted by this legislation, and their assets were confiscated. But as far as Standard Oil was concerned, they continued selling oil to Nazi Germany up until 1945. So they basically um, write... And like the main reason for that was that uh, without oil, 
Nazi Germany could not, under any circumstances, have waged war on the Soviet Union. Um, and, and in fact, uh, the Western Front was also compromised. So that the sale of oil by the United States, um, by Standard Oil, there were no sanctions, no, uh, you know, uh, as we have today on, on, uh, on U.S. oil companies. They sold it through third countries. And then there was a large component uh, which was sold through, um, through Venezuela. And when Operation Barbarossa was, was um, planned in, uh, by Nazi Germany, that's the campaign against the Soviet Union, uh, which uh, led to 26 million deaths, it was understood that they would be getting oil from the United States. They, uh, they were very staunch military planners, and they must have made, certainly made ensured that that would be the case, because otherwise they could not, under any circumstances, have, uh, have engaged on that Eastern Front with very limited supplies of, of fuel. Professor Chosodovsky, um, you said quite a bit uh, there, but I'm... Could you maybe just uh, share with our listeners some of the key source documents that you use to, for, for your research that, uh, that informs your analysis? Well, you know, the, the understanding of the... Well, sometimes the understanding is not there, and, it based, and it, one has to then indulge in, in what might be called a, an outright sort of, uh, you know, common sense analysis. I, I think that uh, John Powell's book is on, on World War II is absolutely fundamental. But you see, it doesn't, it, it, it says, it essentially it says that without fuel, they couldn't have done it. But then the, there's another element, which uh, I, I mentioned, I, uh, well, let me focus on the, on, on the, um, I first focused on, on the British Empire. I think that's very important because the, there was the, the objective of World War II from the U.S. perspective was ultimately to weaken all imperial powers, okay, from a geopolitical standpoint. In other words, weaken France, weaken Italy, weaken Germany, weaken Britain, uh, Belgium and Holland. All these countries had p colonial possessions. And in the wake of World War II, it was uh, another ball game. Um, Europe had been destroyed, was re rebuilding, and the United States was booming. But I think there's another element. When I say that the objective of the United States, the, the two historic objectives of the United States in World War II were, one, to undermine the British Empire, which they did, and they had specific war plans, um, which were formulated in the 20s and 30s. And those were never actually abandoned. They were, they were put on hold in 1939 when, uh, when Britain entered World War II. But there's another factor, and that has to do with a secret plan formulated in 1942 initially but confirmed from declassified documents that the United States was intent in waging a nuclear war against 
the Soviet Union. And um, the, so I'm flashing forward to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, the two atomic bombs were dropped respectively on Hiroshima and Nagasaki under President Truman. And um, we know that in the first uh, few minutes of that bombing of Hiroshima, 100,000 people were, were killed. And the same thing as, as far as Nagasaki, these cities were totally destroyed, uh, leading to also to the issue of radiation and so on. But what most people don't know is that on the 15th of September, declassified documents from the U.S. War Department point unequivocally to U.S. A detailed U.S. plan to bomb the Soviet Union, 66 cities in the Soviet Union, with over 200 atomic bombs. Now, I think this is significant because this project was formulated when the two countries were allies. The Soviet Union and the United States were allies, theoretically, against Nazi Germany. But in fact, history, I think, has to be looked at very carefully. In fact, Nazi Germany was supported with, with petrol fuel for its motorized um, uh, convoys of tanks and armored cars, and not to mention its aircraft. Um, on the one hand, that was standard oil. But at the same time, this project to destroy the Soviet Union, was coupled with a plan to be launched in the immediate wake of World War II, consisting of 200, 204 bombs for 66 cities, which just tantamount to genocide. Um, and um, in that regard, putting the two things together, the the delivery of fuel to Nazi Germany from 1939 to 1944-45 on the one hand, which led to the invasion, which was instrumental to the invasion of, of the Soviet Union. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to do it, leading to 26 million deaths. And the second was the project to use nuclear weapons against the Soviet Union, um, and essentially some historians might have said, well, this was that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were dress rehearsals for a much more devastating project. Now, that project did not, uh, did not take place because the Soviet Union had information on this plan formulated in 1942, and they were in the process of developing their own weapon systems. But what I'm saying there is that the arms race did not start with the Cold War. The arms race started with the Manhattan Project, which consisted in building nuclear weapons capabilities in the United States, and Canada, incidentally, was a partner in that, in that project. And then ultimately, 
contemplating their use as of the 15th of September 1945. I'm quoting the official document. Well, there's still confrontation between the Soviet Union and, and, the, and the United States, although that came officially came a couple of years after the end of World War II. It was called the Truman Doctrine. It was, uh, uh, it was George Keenan which formulated uh, uh, you know, U.S. foreign policy, and it was very much uh, a framework of, of a unipolar world, and um, that, framework of, that, that framework of U.S. hegemony was undermined by the presence of the Soviet Union, and then, of course, that leads to the to the Cold War, and so on and so forth. Essentially, what we're, what we're looking at is a broader perspective of how the United States de facto supported Nazi Germany with a view to, A, weakening the Soviet Union, but also weakening the British Empire and competing empires, including, of course, France, uh, Belgium, uh, Holland, and so on. And again, those countries virtually are no longer colonial parts. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Another aspect of, of U.S. hegemony, as you put it, is also the economic dimension. I mean, we spoke with Michael Hudson uh, a few months back, and you know he mentioned the, the, the use of the U.S. dollar in, uh, in, in maintaining their, their control well, and financing their war agendas. So could you speak to the point of uh, the, the use of, uh, uh, of the U.S. dollar and the way that's been used to uh, maintain America's hegemonic role, the way they've been able to use the, uh, the, the creation of these uh, institutions like the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, and, and just the U.S. dollar as the, uh, the currency, the, the world's petrocurrency. Well, you know, this goes back to the Bretton Woods Agreement of 1944, uh, where the, there was... Uh, a decision uh, which which was virtually imposed in the post-war era to establish uh, the the U.S. dollar as an international currency and uh, and linked up to gold and then subsequently the gold standard was dropped and uh, but I, I and I don't think I want to get into that because it's more complicated but but it's certainly that certainly this dollarization of the of the post-World War II economy, which went through several stages and which then led to the World Bank and the IMF playing a proactive role in, in countries, essentially in countries which are former colonies of, of Western European powers, okay? Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, uh, and of course, Latin America. In other words, these were so-called developing countries. But uh, again, it's the Washington Consensus it's the World Bank, it's the IMF, which are there as instruments uh, in the consolidation of U.S. hegemony because it's U.S. dollar hegemony. And, and definitely that, uh, that uh, is really, uh, in a sense, uh, 
an outcome of um, of World War Two, where all the competing uh, imperial powers are ultimately uh, well, they're no longer competing imperial powers, and I'm talking about well, there were several, and and uh, in fact, uh, we can take Italy, we can take uh, well, Italy, France, uh, Britain, uh, Belgium, Holland, and of course Germany had some colonies as well. Uh, that whole structure has been ultimately flattened and and the, the countries of these former these the territories of these former colonial powers are now within the many of them are within the the US sphere of influence and uh, the, the dollar is their national, is their proxy currency it may not be they may have a domestic currency but it's pegged to the dollar and and the, the very complex arrangements which have have uh, been implemented in that regard. So it's a, it's a structure of domination um, and hegemony using currency markets, uh, uh, economic conditionalities, control of wages, control of prices, and so on and so forth. And then it's also the whole process of delocation, relocation of um, industrial several areas of industrial activity to cheap labor economies. And those cheap labor economies are the former colonies of, of, uh, of, of the Western powers. Now, we are now in the, uh, the, the well, there's the, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so now the, uh, the, the Soviet Union is no more. So no more Soviet Union. And then we entered into a new phase. But the United States and its NATO allies continued to advance towards the border of Russia. So I'm, could, could you talk, and, and, and we're at the point where we are at today, uh, not only with regard to uh, encroachment on Russia, but also this uh, so-called war on terrorism, the post-9-11 period. So does this... Uh, signify a, 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 an important course change, and, and how does that relate to this ongoing effort to supplant the British Empire? Well, I, I mean, the, in the wake of World War, in the wake of World War II, NATO is established. I think that's very important. That uh, was 19, uh, wait a minute, 47 now. Um, well, we just commemorated. No, it, yeah, it was. It it it's it was the forty nine. Yes, it's forty nine. It's the seventieth anniversary of NATO, so to speak, uh, and it's the shift into the Cold War. Now, it, NATO was actually established uh, barely a few months before the um, uh, declaration, uh, the foundation of the People's Republic of China on October. Uh, well, it was the same year, October first, nineteen. 1949, and consistently, of course, NATO has been uh, has been targeting uh, the United States. It's been the main instrument of the Cold War era, and uh, and uh, up until the end of the, the so-called official end of the of the Cold War, which is in 1989, but in effect. You have a subsequent process of consolidation, uh, 
which was not directed against uh, the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union no longer exists. It's, uh, it's directed against the Russian Federation. And it, 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 it is there, again, it's part of a hegemonic project, not uh, by the, the NATO member states, but of, of the United States, which controls NATO via uh, the Pentagon. And uh, I, I think that the whole process of militarization after, after World War II, with the establishment of the geographic command structures, the U.S. Central Command, U.S. Africa Command, U.S. Uh, you know, Pacific Command, etc., hundreds of military bases around the world uh, on the one hand, and largely, well, they're not only there threatening the Soviet Union, they're threatening China, and they are also there as a means to colonize in, 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 in areas which were formerly under, under, you know, under, European, uh, under European colonial powers. In other words, in Southeast Asia, of course, very important is the whole issue of territorial waters and, and so on. Uh, Indonesia is a de facto within, within the uh, U.S. zone of influence and various other countries as well. And so the, the, it's the process of, milit of global militarization in each of the major regions of the world. Um, it's also the... It's also the, the modes of, of uh, interference into the, into the affairs of sovereign states uh, through military dictatorships in Latin America uh, to regime, to subsequently to regime change and so on. It's a whole gamut of, of, of military might, which, of course, supports um, U.S economic and financial interests in, in different parts of the world. And it's not strictly in, on the European, in the European, uh, in the Eastern European context. It's also in Central Asia. Um, it's in the South China Sea, uh, the Taiwan Strait. And uh, in the present structure, we have a situation where the, where the, the Russian Federation and China are allies under the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, um, which uh, ultimately constitutes a very powerful um, countervailing uh, block uh, to, uh, let's say, to U.S. Uh, Western hegemonic uh, influence, uh, particularly in the in the Asian. Um, in the in the Asian context. Now I know that most people understand there was a great deal of enmity toward the uh, between the United States and the British Empire in the late 18th century and early 19th century, but over the course of the last couple of centuries, you know, one would think, well, maybe they've changed their ways. I mean, the the United States is. Uh, more of a, a partnership with the United Kingdom as opposed to looking to supplant them as the uh, dominant empire. Um, could you maybe take on that idea that, uh, that it's, it, there's no interest in a partnership? Because there's certainly been a lot of partnership in all of these military adventures we've seen uh, since the war. Uh, but 
know, what what indications are there that this uh, supplanting of not not just partnership but supplanting of the British Empire is still in effect? Well, you know, uh, the world is characterized by what I would call cross-cutting coalitions. Uh, you can be friends uh, in, in the area of diplomacy and politics, and then your enemies in, in financial matters. Um, we can see the situation with regard to the relationship between, let's say, the United States and Turkey, or, the United, or Turkey and NATO. Uh, Turkey is, is an ally now of, of, uh, of Russia, uh, but it's still part of the North uh, Atlantic Treaty Organization. Now, um, the, I mean, the, the thing is that Britain, Britain and, and the United States, um, you'll find many cross-cutting relations. Uh, Britain is still uh, Europe's main financial market, the London, you know, the, um, London is considered one of the major financial centers in the world. And a lot of, and this, there are links between British and American firms, and there are links also with other European countries. But I think there's something quite specific in, in, in how the United Kingdom al aligns itself with, with the United States. Um, and uh, I, I don't think that British governments have any intent of restoring the British Empire because that, that's more or less, apart from the Commonwealth, that's more or less defunct, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but um, uh, on the other hand, I, I think it's important to, to um, point out that in all the major wars that we've had in recent developments, Britain has always participated in an Anglo-American alliance, uh, both with regard to, you know, with regard to uh, Afghanistan, as well as, of course, with regard to Iraq, which was the Tony Blair, the Bush-Tony Blair relationship. Uh, in that regard, uh, there is, of course, a very cohesive alliance. But when you look at the, the hegemonic objectives of, of the United States, you realize that, in fact, uh, what's happening today in, in, in the United Kingdom is the appointment of a, of a U.S. proxy government okay. um, with uh, Boris Johnson. Okay, could you explain that a little bit? And and like, yeah. well, it, it's not. It's something which is not so straightforward to explain. I should mention there are other cases of proxy governments in in Western Europe, particularly in France. But what this means is that essentially the United States is taking over the European landscape, and it has ultimately. In, in one form or another, it has done that since the end of World War II, simply, simply by the fact that they have U.S. military facilities in, in several uh, European countries, and they have NATO. But in the case of, of Britain, Britain is not part of, of the Eurozone. It's never been part of the Eurozone. And there's a reason to that. 
uh, and it has to do with U.S. U.S.-U.K. relations in 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 terms of financial institutions, markets, and so on. But more recently, there's been uh, agreements, but again, they haven't. The details of these agreements haven't really emerged. Of negotiations between Boris Johnson and the Trump administration, let's say with regard to uh, to macroeconomic policy, specifically the privatization of health services. In other words, what what the U.S. is pushing is the is the installation of a neoliberal uh, restructuring of Britain. Um, extensive privatization, repeal of the welfare state, something which was built in in the post-World War II era and which has nothing to do with colonialism. It it has to do with the fact that at one point the British people pushed towards the development of social programs, education, and so on. And I, I think that what is happening now is that we have a government which ultimately... Uh, is not representative of uh, of the British public. It is far more uh, has become far more um, an instrument of dominant um, U.S. Uh, hegemonic uh, interests, um, as well of, as well as a continuation of the partnership, uh, which uh, which emerged recently also with the, with uh, Tony Blair and so on. So that I think is the 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 end game if we we look at the evolution of of the british empire from the from queen victoria um, and the, the height of the british empire at the end of the 19th century um, where it was already being um, harassed by the the monroe doctrine and the end game is Brexit. Yeah. Uh, not to say that Brexit, it's not the Brexit per se which is the issue, it's the fact that this proxy government has been installed. It's a corrupt government, uh, it's uh, manipulated by financial interests, and ultimately it's leading Britain, the former British Empire, into a total political impasse. Professor Chosodovsky, just I want to, uh, since you, you brought up Brexit there just now, and I just want to get some clarification. Uh, does Brexit ultimately serve U.S. goals, or was it just a means by which a certain kind of uh, proxy, as you say, would get elected? Well, I, I think the broader objective is to create instability across the European landscape, uh, it serves um, it serves uh, U.S. interest in the sense that it cuts Britain off from the from the European Union, but it also uh, redefines a whole series of trade agreements and and so on, 
which uh, I think ultimately will benefit the, the, the United States. Uh, the irony is that U.S. expansionism and hegemony, or, in, or let's say, put it bluntly, imperialism, really feeds on creating, on disrupting local economies, national economies, destabilizing. And, and this has been the, the, you know, this has been the result. Uh, you destabilize an economy, and and uh, and then and and you create divisions. The, the the divisions created in the European in the European space are, are, are point to that. I mean, you you cut countries uh, into small bits, like like the Yugoslavia or Czechoslovakia. Um, you create divisions within national societies. Uh, and at the same time, the war on terrorism is used, of course, to to weaken the, the whole structure of of, of, uh, of Western European countries uh, with a you know the the uh, the refugee crisis is is not the it, it's people fleeing the war theaters in Syria or in Iraq or elsewhere. Uh, which are the result of, U, uh, of U.S. military action, whether it's, through indirect, whether it's direct military action or whether it's through, uh, through the influx of terrorist organizations. European, the whole European um, landscape now is, is, is in crisis politically, socially. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that is also the consequences. The consequence of these U.S.-led wars um, in the Middle East, for instance, but it is also the consequence of neoliberal policies which are now much more generalized and which are now being uh, adopted in, in many Western countries. And inevitably, when you start adopting neoliberal policies in a country like uh, the United Kingdom, you destroy the whole fabric of the welfare state. That's ultimately the objective. Okay, Professor Chostovsky, we're going to have to bring the interview to a close shortly, but I, I wanted to ask one more question about the, uh, the fact that uh, when these plans, uh, this hegemonic uh, uh, agenda originated in the 19th century, the U.S. was ascendant, and now it would seem that uh, today, and, and for a couple of decades now, the U.S. has been on the decline with uh, China apparently appearing to be on the rise and, and forming uh, partnerships with Russia and uh, other countries. So how do you see this? I mean, is this uh, agenda ultimate of, of, you know, imperial dominance going to fall apart or, you know, given the, the immense debts that the U.S. has racked up and the, uh, you know, the inability to, to sell uh, U.S. Treasury bonds as they have in the past. Uh, you, how, how do you see this uh, proceeding? Is is the U.S. hegemon going to succeed, or uh, is there is it destined to fail? Well, you know, it has a lot to do with uh, the sources of, of of money wealth, and it's the growth of speculative activities, the hedge funds, uh, the deregulation of of banking in in the uh, 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 during the Clinton administration, and uh, and uh, the the fact that now you can make money without necessarily producing anything, uh, and you can speculate, and uh, the, 
the various forms of, of uh, wealth creation, which ultimately are at the expense of the of the, the real economy. Then there's the whole issue of delocation, uh, and and in effect, what we see now in the United States is that with uh, certain industries are simply being wiped out, and it's true also in Canada and, and Western Europe, and they've been delocated to Southeast Asia or even to China, for that matter, um, to cheap labor havens in, in Southeast Asia. But at the same time, the, the implementation of these austerity measures, coupled with very large military budgets, is leading to collapse of infrastructure. So the real economy is in crisis. Uh, the, the, the core of the empire, uh, we have, uh, you know, um, well, we published this uh, this week, um, you know, their, their large share of the, of the U.S. population, which, which actually don't even meet uh, food requirements. Uh, it, it's, it's a situation of, of impoverishment of the richest country on, on the planet. And that has to do with the way uh, this, this neo-colonial apparatus has functioned. You delocate everything with a view to paying, uh, you know, $150 a month to, to workers in Southeast Asia. Uh, and so everybody gets, loses their job in, in, on assembly lines in North America and so on and so forth. And ultimately then this leads to, to uh, a process of, of um, you know, downfall of, of the of economic activity, uh, rising food prices, uh, but also the whole infrastructure uh, of of the U.S. economy is is in uh, is in crisis, uh, and I, I suspect that that is going to backlash because the empire is is not in a position to assert its hegemony in real economic activity. Uh, and the, the levels of consumer demand have collapsed because um, of the process of offshoring uh, of jobs. Uh, and uh, you might make a, we might make a comparison there um, with the Roman Empire, is that at one point the Roman Empire, and that was one of the main reasons for its collapse, was that there was no, with, with the destruction of independent um, um, small handicraft um, outfits and farming and so on, and the extension of the slave economy, the levels of consumer demand simply collapsed. And, and the, the whole productive structure uh, went into crisis. Well, we're living that in a sense. Um, we delocate to a cheap labor economy, where they paid 150 or 100 to 100, from $100 to $300 a month, and we closed down our factories here, and then we cut on, on um, all the social expenditures with a view to funding the military-industrial complex with, with large-scale investments now of $1.3 trillion for a nuclear weapons program, which was ultimately, uh, well, the only use for that program is to blow up the planet, ultimately. But that, uh, that's not propaganda tells us that nuclear weapons make, uh, ensure our safety. 
her. And um, so, a again, there's a certain level of absurdity that the, this hegemonic power, the United States of America, uh, has a declining standard of living. Uh, it's, um, it has high levels of illiteracy. It has poverty, uh, racism, and so on. And those conditions are being actually um, exacerbated by the thrust of, of, uh, of its hegemonic objectives in different parts of the world. Professor Chosodovsky, you've been very generous with your time, and uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming into uh, this as we near the end of 2019 to, to share those uh, uh, perspectives with us on this uh, on the, the trajectory of U.S. Uh, military policy. Um, thank you, and uh, all the best in 2020. All the best to, uh, to our listeners and to everybody on Global Research. Thank you very much. We've been joined by Professor Michel Chosodovsky, award-winning writer, professor emeritus of economics at the University of Ottawa, and founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. That just about does it for the show. Next week is the holiday break, but we will air a special episode of the Global Research News Hour. When we return in January, we'll have a special 2019 Year in Review episode. We'd like to thank CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Canada, and all our affiliates in Canada, the United States, and abroad for airing our program. And we'd also like to thank you, the listener, for sticking by us and tuning into us regularly. As the year comes to an end, we encourage listeners to consider a contribution to Global Research, through whose partnership we are able to put together content for this show and make it accessible beyond Winnipeg. If you're listening to the program through a community radio station like CKUW, please show your support for the show by making a donation when that station pitches for funds, as CKUW will in early February 2020. been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. Global Research News Hour.